Welcome to Walking It Out, living the Bible in everyday real life. We're going to look at this. Today, we're going to start with something really simple. So simple. I think some people think because you're sitting here, you're in the church, you would think, why even talk about this? I believe in God, but not in Jesus. Here's the thing is that there are 7.7 roughly billion people on the planet. It's crazy. It's hard for me to even, I went to a website that had little tiny people icons and they literally put 7.8 billion of these little icons and you just, to get an idea, you just keep scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and scrolling so you can idea how many people that is. But even more fascinating to me is not that there's 7.7, 7.8 billion people, is that over half of them, some 51%, 52%, 4 point whatever percent, uh, 4 point whatever billion people believe in God or an idea of God, or the subject of God. That's fascinating. And I think the world we live in, and maybe even for some of us in here, you look at the news and you look at this rise of people who, who are questioning God's existence, or they believe that we all came from uh, some primordial soup that existed before anything was really real, and we, we have evolved from things, or, or people who are just agnostic, or secular humanist, or whatever, and you read that and you think, well, that's good news in this world. That out of, you know, half of the human beings that live on the planet Earth, we would say maybe that's, that's an awesome thing. That means that people are praying. That can't be a bad thing. They're worshiping. That's a good thing. They believe in a God who is <clears throat> providing them peace, who helps them when things are hard and they're struggling with things in life. This is a person who gives them security here on Earth and, and is providing for them this sense of, a, of security for all of eternity. And we would look at that initially on the surface and say, that is got to be a good thing, a belief in God. And I would tell you this, as I kind of started thinking and looking at those numbers, I I would tell you that's a very postmodern, I'm going to describe this in a very postmodern way of thinking today. Our world, we live in what they would describe they, because they describe everything. They would describe the world we live in as a very postmodern thinking kind of a world. And by postmodern, I mean this. The way that our world today defines what is meaningful and the way our world defines what is real may possibly, and I would venture to bet, different than how your parents found meaning and truth and how certainly your great-grandparents found meaning and truth. Nowadays, we live in a postmodern world that says, here's how we define what is meaningful and here's how we define, more importantly, what's true. It's really based upon the individual, not us collectively as a world. That everything that is true and everything is real is really only real and really only true for you. It may not be real and true and meaningful to me. They would tell you that the way we come up with meaning for life, the meaning for everything is based upon this personal history, your personal social class, your personal gender, culture, religion. Those factors shape the narrative of our lives and give us individual meaning for our lives. So what I want you to understand is when we live in that kind of a world, anybody who would have the audacity to assert that there are some things that are universally true for all peoples at all times, we live in a world that is almost soundly going to just abhor that and think it's repugnant and reject that idea. If you want to believe that, it's fine for you, but don't tell me that that's true for me. It's a crazy concept. We can talk about this all day. These are the kind of things that get you hung up on this hamster wheel of thought, you know. For somebody to say nothing, 
some, nothing can be absolutely true and they're absolutely sure of it messes with my brain a little bit. But this is the world we live in. We live in a world where people are at very least suspicious of those who make universal truth claims. But I, I think even further than that, they, they, are, they repudiate it. They, they, they look at it like it's disgusting because they feel like it's something that oppresses them. And this is important for us to look at this morning. The reason why I'm telling this is because if you claim to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you believe the truth in the authority of God's word, then you're going to fall into this group of people who have the audacity to make a universal truth claim. And I think of Paul. Paul in 1 Timothy 2, 5. I'm going to get there in a minute. You just listen along with me. Paul said it like this. He was living in a world, oh, by the way, where people had multiple gods. Gods of everything. A very Roman culture where there was a god of the stage, a god of the carpet, a god of the guitar. When you died, you became a god. Mos Maiorum and god of your ancestors. And there were just gods of everything. God of the kitchen, god of the living room. And he had the audacity to, to write to his ministry sponge, Timothy, and make these words. It was a bold claim. He says, for there is one god. That would have upset some people. And then he went further and he says, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. That wasn't something Paul was saying. Oh, by the way, Timothy, if you want to accept that, that'll be true for you. But if not, that's cool. Nope. One God, whether you like it or not, it's true. It's kind of like that bumper sticker that you see. You don't see it as much now, but you see it in the 90s, the 80s. God said it. I believe it. It's true. It's really not even that. You need to take that middle part out. God said it, it's true. Whether I like it or not, it doesn't really matter. God said it, it's true. The world repudiates that kind of an idea. We look at it and I think the world would look at us and ask some questions. They would be angry about this. And and the reason why I want us to talk about this, so so for anybody in the room who's saying, Brad, we're already a Christian, we already believe this. We, We don't ask that question. I believe in God and I believe in Christ. I would say this, I'm not so sure. I look at denominations, I look at Christians and I would tell you this. I look at the world, I look at the church and I see a church that is fairly aggressively drifting away from right belief in God drifting you know somebody said it like this one time nobody ever drifts toward right orthodoxy you don't ever just aimlessly not read your bible and get more like christ and have right thinking everything that you are and everything i am is fundamentally opposed to the word i'm not going to drift there we only ever drift away from right thinking about god and right theology i look at whole churches who are just looking at the word and saying, you know, this is no longer inheritance, no longer authority, we don't need it. And when you do that, everything's on the table. I'll make up my idea about who Jesus is and who God is and call myself a Christian and really not honor Christ as supreme in my life. I look at a world of Christians, I'm just telling you in the church, the reason why we need to talk about this, and I'm just speaking the truth here and I'm speaking in love, I know that I look in the mirror on this. There, there are a whole swath of Christians who I think believe the Bible, don't read the Bible. They believe in Jesus, couldn't begin to answer the questions of people who might ask them questions about Jesus. I mean, I I think there was a time in my life, and I I look at a lot of Christians who have Bibles, love the Bible, hear the Bible, but are biblically illiterate. I think it's important for Christians to know this, because let me tell you something. I think there are people in the room right now, you might have a belief in God, but but you you didn't want to say it because you happen to be in a church today, but I want you to know it's totally okay. You have right questions, questions of what what does it matter about Jesus? I think these are the questions we're going to hear. If you want to go out and we become more of a go and tell church, and you're going to go and you're going to begin to have conversations about what you believe in your workplace, in your living room, with your next door neighbor, they're going to ask you questions. Why do Christians do this? That's the question I would ask. 
Before I came to know Christ, I would ask questions. I had a fundamental belief in God. I would say, why do Christians insist that Jesus Christ, like Paul did here in 1 Timothy 2, why do they insist that Jesus is the only way to know God? I mean, how how are you going to answer that? Would you even know where to take them in the word? Would you be able to describe that to anybody? When they, when they ask you and, and go a little bit further and they ask you the question and say, what about people who trust, love, they worship God? Are you saying that their trust, love, and worship isn't valid? Because what? They don't believe in Jesus? And even more than that, they'll make it more practical. they say, wait a minute, you're telling me if somebody loves God, worships God, believes in God, but just because they don't believe in Jesus, what? That they're not saved? That they're going to go to hell? Isn't the goal for us to know God? Is, is this what you're going to tell me here? I think the world would look at this and they would say, something there doesn't seem right. Something there, they'll use this word, doesn't seem fair what I would tell you is that the question and the topic we're talking about today for so many people even Jesus said this to say that Jesus is who he is that he is God and he's the only way to the father is an absolute struggle and an obstacle for so many people I mean Jesus said it perfectly he says this is a guy it's a stumbling block for the Jews foolishness for everybody else he would stand in front of him and say what we just sang I am yeah (laughs) Abraham wishes he knew me. People are like, this guy's lost his mind. He's crazy. Here you are. You were not before Abraham. How could you, how could they be talking about you, all these prophets? When he stood up and he says, hey, let me pull out the prophets. Let me read it. Uh, Yeah, that's me. And he sat down. They're like, no. The world would look at us and, and, and one, think that we're, it's an obstacle and think that we're crazy. I mean, we just go through Scripture. I mean, and if we just believe Scripture and read it, people would say, this is repugnant to me. I mean, Acts 4.12, I'll just read it for you. Follow along with me, says this. And there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. That's pretty exclusive. John 14, 6 through 7, Jesus says this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known the Father also. For from now on, you do know him and have seen him. That's a pretty crazy claim for Jesus there. You want to see God? I am. Got Jesus killed for saying that kind of a thing. Apparently, it was repugnant 2,000 years ago too. Scripture like this, that Christians say they believe in God, but it's not enough. It's because the word has instructed us that when we look at people, belief in God is not enough. The reason why we need to talk about this is if I'm going to share the hope of the gospel, the truth, I cannot gloss over Jesus. There is no talking about God without talking about Jesus. There's no possible way to do it. They cannot be separated like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. You should never eat a peanut butter sandwich. Never. It's wrong. Always jelly. And don't eat just a jelly sandwich. Why would you do that? They go together. They have to all the time. It's mean. Second service. Talking about food. We need to know this church. And here's what I'd say. This is going to be a little bit like a basic systematic theology class. I'm going to try my best to not make it that way. But it's what it is. And I think the church needs that kind of instruction from time to time. We need that instruction because I think we forget. Honestly, I think the things that matter most and we should know most are the things that we forget the most. Somebody came up and said, tell me about Jesus. And instead of 
I think we initially just dive into feelings and how we feel about him and what he did for us, but we have a hard time describing who he is. We can talk about Jesus the man, but I think we struggle with trying to describe Jesus' divinity. It's good for us to know. People are going to ask us questions. They're going to look at us again and maybe rephrase it. Is God real? What's going to follow that conversation if you have the audacity to go out and tell people about Jesus? They want to ask you a question. Why would God? These are the questions I would have about God. Why would God make access to him and the way to him so narrow? Why would he make the path so narrow? Why would he make the gate so small? I mean, if people want to love him and people want to pray to him and people want to be good to him, what does it matter how they come to him? I I met a guy and his name was Awesome one time at the bottom floor of the union at LSU. I'll never forget his name because that's a unique name. It was Awesome. I got tasked in 1997 to represent the Baptist Student Union at the union. This is 35,000 people on campus. I would go set up around lunchtime and stand out there for a couple hours with pamphlets on the Baptist Student Union and Jesus. And I thought, this is going to be awesome, man. I'm going to tell people about Jesus, man. I don't know what I thought, but I thought it was going to be like soul winning. People just come and revival on campus. It didn't go down like that. People came up and lots of hundreds of people came up and they had nothing but questions. And usually those ended with not a lot of answers. It was eye-opening for me as a young man beginning School had only been a believer for about five years at that point, but man, the zeal was there. The knowledge of who God was was not. And most people came up and they wanted to challenge what I believe, and they asked me these kind of questions. I really couldn't give them sufficient answers, and then they were ugly and snarky and mean and negative, and I just kept praying, God, let me continue to do this. But Awesome came up, and he was a little bit different. He was very nice. He came up, and his first statement out of his mouth, he's like, oh, the Bible, I love the Bible. And I'm like, thank you, Jesus. Somebody's nice. Yes! That was the height of the conversation. Immediate laughter. that, he's like, but I love the Quran. I love the Book of Mormon. I love all these other kind of different literatures. And, and essentially, to put it in a nutshell, he's like, I think it's beautiful, it's wonderful. You know, if God's here in the middle of the universe, I think everybody, everybody's good. They all have their own path to God. And I was thinking, oh man, the little bit of the word I knew, I was like, this was going so well. And you open up the word and you begin to, to share with him and, and begin to describe things like, he's like, well, what do you believe? I'm like, yeah, man, I, I do love the Bible too, but you know, there is only one way, one mediator. He is the way, the truth, the life. It didn't end so well. Looked at me as closed-minded and exclusive and repugnant, and I really didn't have an opportunity to sit down and, and have. I asked him, can we meet later? I didn't have that opportunity, and I'm not sure I would have even been prepared to do that, but we need to know this. We need to know this for our own self because we will forget it. And when we forget who Jesus is, we will worship other gods. When we forget, just, so, so you know what, before we dig into the deep end of the pool here, if we forget how, who Jesus is and how extremely supreme he is over every single thing and every other being, we will worship golden cows and worship ourselves and worship our family and our job and money and the world and our way and our preferences and everything else in the sun. And we are really capable and have a propensity to do just that. We come to this scripture and we we want to answer that question. Why do we have to believe in God and Jesus? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to open up to Colossians chapter 1. 
And I want you to kind of hold your finger there at verse 15 because we're going to get into that in a minute. I think it's the best place where Paul begins to answer that question. He began to answer it for the church at Colossae. But as we do that, let me just say this to you as we're going to answer this question. We've got to know some things. In order to answer this question, we have to actually have a little bit of a basic understanding of something else. What people are asking, you've got to look behind the lines and it's why we need to have good orthodoxy, why we need to have good theology, we need to know what we believe. If somebody's going to ask, why do I have to believe in God and Jesus, really? what they're asking is a question about the nature of God. I remember one time I was interviewing for a youth pastor position, same year, 1997, and usually when I interviewed for those positions, they were asking me things about youth culture and how I would run Bible study and programming and all those good things, but I had one pastor who sat me down, he asked me one question. I was 18 years old, he says, what is the nature of God? And I was like, oh. Like I've only been a believer since 1991. The nature of God, that seemed like there was going to be a big answer and I'm sure I skirted all around it with things that were true but, but it, thankfully he was patient with me and he, he began to break it down a little bit. And I think a lot of times people wouldn't know how to even answer that question. Somebody came in and said, what's the nature of God? You're like, we, we describe feelings. Well, he's good. Okay. He's wise and omnipotent. No, that doesn't describe his nature. And so this pastor asked me, well, Brad, let me help you. What is your nature? Now I knew what he was talking about. Brad Kirby, you know what I am? I am a human. This is my nature. Human nature. Uh, I, this is here on this side of heaven. This is all I'm going to be. I'm a human being. That's how my classification is. You know, if you have a cat at home, Fluffy, Fluffy's nature is a feline. It's a cat. Scruffy, maybe you have a dog. That dog is a canine. And, and I know uh, for some of you who treat those animals like they're human beings, uh, I'm sorry, it's not true. Scruffy, Scruffy is just a dog. I'm sorry. I just lost half the room right now. They're like, I rebuked that. Scruffy's my own child. No, no, I'm sorry. I'm speaking the truth to you in love. No, he's not. He's not. Shouldn't be sitting at the table eating with us. I'm just saying. People are confused about the nature of God. It's a question about the nature of God. They're making an assumption that we need to understand. In order for me to answer this question, they're making an assumption. They are making an assumption. When they ask me, why is it that I can't believe in God and without separating Jesus, they're making an assumption that Jesus is not God. That's the difference in what we believe. They're separating them out like there is no connection there. And this is what they get caught up with when we begin to look at this in Scripture. And it's understanding something that the nature of God's different than scruffy the nature of God's different than fluffy he's different than bread it's not just one thing the nature of God is three in one it's uniquely different than everything else father son Jesus Holy Spirit they are independent and interdependent in one it's a mystery (laughs) there are lots of things that are profound mysteries this is right at the top of the list for a lot of people and I'm actually okay with it I cannot find any a perfect illustration of this in nature you know where things are separate but they're actually one in the same and it's wonderful because if I could explain everything about God to you he would cease to be God and this is one of those things his nature I believe it I understand it and it blows my mind all at the same time he's three in one Jesus was fully human 100% human not 50-50 not 25-75 fully human 100% and 100% God boom in the same being I mean, we see this in Scripture. This is what, we, we would just have to deny Scripture if we want to deny the Word of God. He says in 1 John 2, 23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. 
Let me just read this for you. 1 John 5, 10 through 12. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God is born concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. John 5, 22 through 23. The Father judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son that all may honor the Son Listen to this. How should they honor the Son? Just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who has sent him. Give a couple more. Luke 10, 16. Listen to Jesus' word. The one who hears you, Father, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Jesus here talking. 2 John 9. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. You look through Scripture and it's explicitly laying out for us very directly and explicitly that Jesus and God are explicitly, directly linked. And what I want to show you is that we don't even know the half of it when we say that. It's not just like they're bosom buddies or best friends or, or family. It is something far more intricate and deep and woven than that. This is what Paul was trying to describe here in Colossians chapter 1. He's looking at this church in Colossae. And apparently they were struggling with this idea. Apparently there was some waffling between the culture that says that there are all kinds of gods. We should worship them. They were struggling with this idea of, of putting preeminence and supremacy on Jesus as God. They were struggling with this idea. And here we come to what I think is the best description for us. Paul begins to break this down for him. And here's what he says. Look with me in verse 15. He begins to instruct them. He says in verse 15, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. For by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn now from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. I'm going to stop there for a second. There is a lot to unpack in that passage of scripture and we can't do it in one session. There is a lot of theology in that passage of scripture. And I don't want you to get scared by that word theology. I think people get scared. I don't want to study theology. That's for smart people. No, let me help you understand something. I would imagine every single one of you in this room right now, whether you believe in Jesus or not, you are a theologian. I want you to know that. It doesn't take much to be a theologian. If you've ever had a thought, God is, whatever followed that, you're a theologian. If you have an opinion about God, you're a theologian. Our goal today is not to find a theologian or to look at theology. Our goal today now is to have right and good and accurate theology. Amen. A lot of theologians in the world doesn't mean they're smart. They might be terrible theologians. I read about a terrible theologian this Easter who heads up a seminary 
refers to herself as a fierce theologian. That's true. She's a theologian and fierce. She's fiercely wrong about Jesus and his nature and his resurrection and the word of God. Fiercely wrong in opposition to the word of God. We are looking at theology here and there's a lot there. And Paul is trying to express through this theology, this right theology about who Jesus is, this Christology in Jesus. He's trying to describe it here. And here's the best illustration I've heard to help us maybe understand this. I read about in 1893 in Chicago, they hosted what was called the World's Columbian Exposition. And all that meant is they opened up their city to just put all these exhibits out there about all kind of things. Things, products, commercials, uh, you know, come and look at our new product. But one of the things that they had set up and one of the areas of this, this exposition is that they were going to have what was called the World Parliament of Religions. They were going to invite every religion and teacher and rabbi and people and put them on display with the hopes of doing a couple things. That people could come from all over the world and hear the finer points of all these religions. There was also the hopes that they might form a new kind of religion that was going to happen here. It was amazing. And 21 million people showed up to Chicago, which is crazy considering 20 years before this, it was the great fire of Chicago. The whole world was here and it put Chicago on the map. It's an incredible thing. 21 million people are going to hear about religion. They're going to hear about God. So there was a man that some of us are familiar with, D.L. Moody, to make this story short, said, you know what? This isn't going to be an obstacle. This is an incredible opportunity. 21 million people are going to come. We need to go tell them about Jesus. I love men like that who just see where people are and say, we got to go there. It's like Paul. And so he started to come up with this campaign, they call it. He had this campaign. We are going to bring in all kinds of preachers and I'm going to set them up on street corners around the city. He got this big circus tent. They were going to do like big tent revival and tell people about Jesus. He had them in churches. And here's the thing is that, that all of the other preachers and the Christians thought that the strategy he was trying to compile was to go in and bash all these other religions and tell them where this is wrong, 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 heresy, 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 and just shatter them to pieces. And D.L. Moody said, no, we're not going to do that. That's not the strategy. Like, what do you mean? He's like, what, what, what's your strategy? What are you going to do? I'm going to set this tent up. I'm going to put people on every street corner. And we're just going to tell them about how awesome Jesus is. Amen. Why is it important that we know who Jesus is? Because when you know who Jesus is and you can communicate who Jesus is, here's what we learned. And here's what Paul was trying to do to the church in Colossians. He was trying to help them understand, I don't have to tear down anybody else. I don't have to tear down any other religion. If I just put Jesus, who he is next to them, they will look like peanuts compared to him. He's better than everything. Oh, I don't have to defend him or tear anybody down. I just put Jesus next to anything and nothing will compare to that. It's like putting a bag of teriyaki beef jerky in front of me and a bacon wrapped filet mignon. That's not even a question. I mean, I'll take the beef jerky, but I'm going to take bacon wrapped anything. But bacon wrapped filet mignon, this is, I'm taking it. It's supreme. It's preeminent. Give it to me. You don't have to talk bad about the teriyaki. You had me at bacon wrapped. That's it. This was Paul's strategy here. He wanted the church to know. Apparently the church was struggling with who Jesus is. And they were being enticed. Because they had forgotten about how awesome Jesus is. They were being enticed by these other little beef jerky trinkets of the world. And these other little false gods that started looking good. How could people come down the mountain noses and find them worshiping a golden calf? They melted down their earrings because they had forgotten. They had forgotten. We need to be reminded. It's amazing. How should we ever be reminded of how incredible Jesus is right after Easter? But it happens. It happens. And Paul begins to do this. Paul was standing in the midst of the Roman world and just like my friend Awesome, and he was saying, you know what? Hey, you like all these other gods? That's great. They don't even compare. 
That's what I should have told him. Let me just tell you about Jesus. I really don't have to be an expert in all these other gods, you know. Uh, these Hindu gods. I mean, God's everywhere. I, let me just tell you about Jesus and let Jesus be who Jesus is. So we begin to come to this passage of Scripture, and here's what I want to do with the rest of our time this morning. I just simply want to dissect just very quickly what, what Paul began to describe for them. I love this. If he was able to do this in eight verses, we ought to be able to describe this to our neighbor. I think what we have here is an incredible outline that will help us do that. He began to dissect this passage of Scripture and help us understand, okay, if Christ is awesome, why? That's what your neighbor's going to ask you, and Paul begins to describe that. Look at verse 15. Look what he says here, just in his first words. He says, he is the image of the invisible God. That is fascinating to me. All through the Old Testament to the New Testament, people don't struggle with the invisible God part. I mean, the Old Testament says that. I mean, we even get to John 1. I mean, you look at, look at John 1, and, and what did he say here? The very beginning, John 1, 18, it says, no one has ever seen God. People get that. No matter who your God is, we have that concept. It's when he continued on with that sentence is where people got the hang up. John 1, 18, he says, no one's ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Amen. You know what John was saying and what Paul began to say here in verse 10, uh, 15, he is the image of the invisible God. And I want to throw a very seminary kind of term out there for you. Uh, Jesus is the exegesis of God. Some of you haven't heard that word. You're thinking, I didn't even know there was an extra Jesus. <laughs> you know, I thought there was only one Jesus. Exegesis. Make this very simply, what we do when we exegete, we usually exegete texts of scripture. We're, we're finding its meaning. We are interpreting it. Not, not an eisegesis. Eisegesis would say, I'm going to go in here and make the word say what I want it to say. No, 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 no. The Holy Spirit's inspired this. I go and I look at language. I look at the context of scripture around it. I look at history. I look at culture. And I find out what it is that the Spirit wanted the word. What it was supposed to say. Jesus is doing that for us to see God. He is showing us the Father that we could not know. I mean, we could see him like Romans says in creation. And know that there is some intelligent designer and being. But I can't know him specifically. I can't know his character I can't know his goodness I can't taste and know him Jesus is the interpretation of God for us thank God the only way we can know God in a relationship is because of Jesus not just know about him this is what he's saying here while we just read that it says all of the the Bible is affirming that and that's what Colossians 1 is saying is that he is the image I love that word image in the Greek it's the word icon it's where we get our English word icon it literally means, it means like an image, a figure, a likeness, or, or it's like Warren Wiersbe would say, like a picture. Jesus is, think about it this way, the picture, the portrait, the artwork, the photo, the snapshot, the sculpture of God. But he's more than even that. It wasn't like he said, I'm just going to physically look like him. And we just get physical characteristics. No, we see something else. What does he say? I go to the, the author of Hebrews, and I'll just read this for you so you don't have to flip there. The author of Hebrews said this in Hebrews 1.3. Something very similar to what we read in Colossians, but different. Listen to this. That pastor said, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's so interesting. When you read that word exact imprint, it's where we get the English word character. 
But it means the exact imprint. He is the instrument for engraving, carving, stamping, impressing, burning. It's like when you make an image on a coin or a stamp or you brand some piece of wood. That's the image there. But what is he, the, the branding and the image of it, just the physical things? No, the character of God. I mean, we read through Psalms and you see this, the, the goodness of God, the radiance of his glory. You know what that tells me? It's more than just a snapshot. It's more than a Polaroid of who God and his physical characteristics. This is someone you cannot separate from the radiance of his glory. They are one in the same. That's what Jesus is saying. You see me, when you hear me, when you experience me, you're experiencing the Father, I am. I thought about how I could make this theology come more alive if I'm confusing anybody. I want to show you a picture of my son, Luke Kirby. There he is. He hadn't been born long at that moment. And you know, when you have a a new baby and you look at him, everybody does the same thing. I remember when I got this picture, this was the first picture I looked at and I thought, I wonder who who does he look like? That's the question you always ask. Does he look like me or my mom or my grandpa? What side of the family? Which is a crazy thing. They don't look like anybody at this age. (laughs) They look like other babies. I remember trying to look at his nose and say, and then my mama sent me a picture. Because, you know, mamas can pick that out better than people. Grandmas can. Sent me this picture. And it just so happened my head was tilted at the same angle. And I started to look at me and I thought, you know, if you didn't have the name under there, and of course the pictures were a little bit better quality, you, you might be confused if that was Luke or if that was Daddy. I mean, I put us side by side. So when I got it, I put them right next to each other. And you're like, holy smokes. I can't deny this kid. <laughs> his nose looks like mine. His mouth looks like mine. His chin looks like mine. His hair looks the same as mine. <laughs> I remember that. I'm going to remember that. It was receding even back then. But you look at this and here's the interesting thing is we are really close, but we are 100% different. I mean, even then while we're, we're really close, there are some differences. You could nitpick and be like, well, there's a freckle over here. There wasn't a freckle over here. And here's the thing, but that's not that way with God. Yes, they are completely different, but in, they are the same, the exact imprint. If you were to take a mold of, of the face and look at it, they're the same, but even more so, they are the same. It boggles your mind. This is what Paul was trying to say. And he he got a little bit more elaborate. And this is how I want to end. I I think for all the people that kept asking questions like a six-year-old, apparently the church at Colossae would have been doing this. Okay, I get it. They're one and the same. And and that means that Jesus can't be separated out. I cannot worship God without worshiping worshiping Jesus because they're one and the same. And what Paul wanted to know is we ought to worship him because he's God and he is above and better and preeminent and more magnificent and first over every single thing. And I think even if they got to this point, they would have been like, yeah, well, how? Describe it to me. And he did. Four things we see in the scripture very clearly, just so we can know. I can give you this ammunition just so you can remind yourself so you can talk to your neighbor. Look at the first thing he says. He describes why Jesus, who is God, is preeminent and above all things and why he is God. He begins to do this right in our very first verse. Look at verse 15. He says this, he is the image of the invisible God, comma, the firstborn of creation. That has confused a whole bunch of people. There are whole denominations of people who only want to read verse 15 and they want to skip verses 16, 17, and 18. They want to take this out of context and say, well, see there, that means Jesus is not God. He's just the first created being. And I'm sorry, I'm going to say this as nice as I can. That, that's dumb. That's bad exegesis. 
Just, just keep reading. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created. No, okay. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers and authorities. That's talking about angelic beings there. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things. So he ain't the first created being. He's before all things. If you just want to pick that out there, like our Jehovah's Witness friends that would tell us this is he's not God. No, that, that's totally out of context. And additionally, what I would throw in there, just so we can understand what, the, what Paul is trying to say here, firstborn all through Scripture did not, a lot of times, refer to the firstborn child. That's not what this passage of Scripture is talking about. Firstborn in this passage, even when you go back to Psalms, when you go back to Exodus, it's talking about a rank, a priority, an order of importance. This is what we begin to see. I and mean, we see it in Psalm 89, 27. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. It's not talking about a firstborn human being. Exodus 4, 22, the nation of Israel. What are they referred to? He says, they shall say to Pharaoh, thus saith the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. We don't take that literally. All through scripture, you see that this is referring to a rank, an order, preeminence, supremacy. This is what he's trying to say here. Here's what Paul is trying to make the case. He is the firstborn of creation. It means this. Here's why he's God. Take everything that's ever been created and put it in the middle of the circle. And Jesus is not only on the outside of the circle, he's above it. He's not just the first rung of the ladder. He is outside of the ladder. He's way over that. He's awesome. He is above anything in creation. He is above the visible, the invisible. That's unbelievable for me to think about. He is above and not only that, look at this as we go a little bit further. Look at verse 16. Not only is he God because he is outside of creation. He's more supreme than everything that's all in creation. He says this. Why is he supreme? Verse 16. For by him, all the things that were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him. You might have a translation of the Bible that says toward him. Not only is he above and different than and more supreme than everything in creation, he is the creator. Amen. That's unbelievable. Jesus, you know how far above everything is? He created everything in all of creation. The seen stuff and all the stuff that we can't see. I mean, I started thinking about the universe, the little bit that we know about the universe. Our telescopes, because of the speed of light, can only look about 13, and I say only, that's ridiculous, can only look about 13.4 billion light years really in any direction we point a telescope. That means theoretically that the observable universe is about 27, 28 billion light years in diameter. That's the observable universe. Everything outside of that, we can't see. Jesus created it. Boy, do you, you, you forget who we worship sometimes? How callously we talk about him. You go to the mall and people got shirts, Jesus, my homeboy. No. No. Even if we was, we should not be saying that. Yes, he calls us friends, but he is master and king and creator. Supreme. Preeminent. Everything was created for him. That means that everything began with him. And so when we have conversations with people, we don't gloss over Jesus. We have to talk about Jesus because you know what? Everything began with him and everything's gonna end with him. He's the beginning, he is the end. He is the alpha, he's the omega. And one day, everything according to the promises of scripture will glorify him. So we better start doing that right now. We should too. 
Not only that, look at this. In, in verse 17, he says, not only is he above and more supreme and preeminent over creation, not only is he the one who created creation, look at verse 17. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Not only is he the creator, he's the sustainer of creation. That means right now. It's not like he just took all of this and threw it into place and he set it and let it go. Right now, he is what is holding all of this together. That's an unbelievable thought. The breath that is coming out of my body right now to speak this word to you that was written down by another person who had breath that the Holy Spirit breathed this inspired word to them, that's all being held together by Jesus. There are seven billion things that could have ended your life this morning on the way to church. But the Lord sustained your being in life so that you would be here today. Your life, your heart, your breath, you are a part of creation and everything else is being held together and sustained by Jesus. How to create absolute awe and wonder for us. Just take a second here. I think so much we get into theology that one of the things I hate about this sermon is we won't maybe be able to dig into the practical parts of this other than we want to be able to describe this to somebody, but this is a good one. People would say, well, what does that even matter that he's the creator and sustainer? Let me tell you something. If he created you and he is sustaining that creation now and something is broken, he's the one qualified to fix it. Amen. That's good news. Man broke things with our sin. We broke it. We went against our vows. We messed up the creation. Good news. Why we don't gloss over Jesus? He's above all that. He can fix it. I was thinking about the motors. Some motors, if you didn't know it, there's these screens over here. We were talking about this at Easter last week. There's screens. There's two sets of screens. There's this one and then another shade. And to make a long story short, there's a, a motor up in each one of these window frames that pulls the, the uh, screens up. Well, they're broken. All the screens behind there are stuck in the up position. Doesn't seem like it'd be a big problem. You're like, let's get somebody here and fix this. Problem is, when this church was built, the company that put those in and the man who made those, it does not exist anymore. So we're all sitting around scratching our heads like, so where are the motors? How do we even get up there? If we got up there, it'd be like looking at the cockpit of an airplane. How do we fix this? I don't know. Does anybody make these? You know, and so what we're trying to do is maybe not get in touch with the company. What would help us the best is I need to find the man who made that. And I need to find the one who who can fix it. He's the only one. Short of that, we're just going to not have any shades that ever come down. That might be the best scenario, but we got to find the maker. He can fix what's broken with what he made. That's awesome practical wisdom for us. But it's not even done there. I want to give you one more thing before we're done here looking at this scripture. Why is he supreme? Why is he God? What makes him so great? It's not just that he is above all of creation. It's not just that he is the creator and the one who sustains all this. Listen to verse 18. And I think we gloss over this one and it's the best one yet. Verse 18 says, and he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. I think that we look at this and we say, just as Jesus is, is over all of creation, that includes all of salvation too and redemptive history and the most important stuff of the church. If we have come to know Jesus Christ, we are a part of his body and he is over that as well. And let me tell you what this means, firstborn among the dead. People get confused with that too. It doesn't mean he's just the first one that died or 
came back from death. No, that's not really what he's talking about. You know what, what Paul was trying to do? And let me make this as concise as possible. He was describing something that Jesus chose to do that only Jesus could do because he's God. Not only is he the creator of all things and the sustainer of all things, he chose to. God chose to become a part of the creation and let the creation murder him. And then, because of the, his own power, resurrect his own life for the creation. This is the gospel of Jesus. He came to fix a problem that we broke and he's the only one who can fix it. My problem is the sin that I have deserves death and so he came and died because he's fully human and fully God. He's the only one worthy, the only one perfect spotless lamb to take that sin. You know what Paul's saying? Guess what? Whatever other gods, put them up here and line them up on this stage. Line them up. They can't do that. Because they're not God. He's worthy of our attention. And he ends that verse and he says, because of that, just quite simply, you look at this verse and he says, and then in everything, he might be preeminent. I'm just going to say this as we come to an end. And what is the reminder for us this morning for people who like to forget and tone down Jesus and think about everything else? He is the first and best in everything, is what verse 18 says. Nothing should come before him. Not only is there no gods above him, there are no other gods. And if something else comes above him, it is called idolatry, not worship, not prayer, not love. Idolatry.